Before we begin, I'm just going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 31, the sixth day of creation. If you like, you can stand with me. If you're able, as read God's word. Genesis 1, 26 through 31, I'm reading from the NIV, which says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You may be seated. Father, we thank you that you are our creator. As Walt said earlier, you are our Lord and you are sovereign over all things. It's what it means to be our creator. We thank you, Lord, that you created all things good. And that is what you do. And this morning, Lord, we, we pray that you would encourage us by your word that you are a good creator. Be with us. Be with the kids over in Children's Church. They may know you and know your son. Be with us and speak to us through your word that we may know our Creator. Thank you for being a speaking God who loves us. May we praise you. Amen. Five years ago, the world reached an ominous milestone. For the first time in recorded history, adults 65 and older outnumbered children under five years old. This is according to a National Geographic article on the aging population of Japan. Japan has one of the oldest populations on Earth, with nearly 30% of its people 65 and over, the median age of 49. Its average life expectancy is almost 85, which is excellent. However, since 1974, its fertility rate has been below 2.1 children per woman, which is the level needed to sustain a country's population. The needed fertility rate is 2.1 children per woman. Japan, since 1970s, has been below that, and the fertility rate is now 1.3 children per woman, which is another way of saying its population is dying. It's not difficult to see how that will affect the population. There will be increasing needs that aren't able to be met, insufficient care and funds to care for the elderly, insufficient people. is resulting in some dystopian realities where towns and schools and homes are vacated and have become ghost towns. Robots and androids are used in nursing homes, and sometimes uh, one person at the center will use a radio and speak through robots that have voices in them so they can 
speak to multiple people just through androids. There's one image in this National Geographic article that's somewhat disturbing. It's an elderly woman surrounded by life-size dolls in order to create the appearance of people around. Japan isn't the only nation facing this potential problem. Nations around the world, especially modern nations, are dropping in their fertility rates. In 1950, globally, women typically had five births each. That was the average globally in 1950. Last year, it was 2.3. Though I remember in my college biology class watching a video about the, the, global, the population winter that's coming, that the, if we keep up at these rates, the global population is going to increase so much, we're going to fill the earth so much, the earth won't be able to sustain us, and there's a kind of this doomsday of increasing population, when really the opposite is true, we're dropping in our fertility rates. If you study the book of Genesis, I think you know what the problem is. Globally, we have failed to appreciate Genesis 1 and understand the mission that God gave us. A dropping population is a sign that we have not understood, appreciated, or applied the doctrine of the image of God. You may have heard it in Latin, the Imago Dei. And that's what I want to study this morning and look at. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does that mean for us, to be made in the image of God? That's the question I want to ask this morning. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Because that's what this section is all about in Genesis 1, 26-31, the sixth day of creation, the final day of creation, the final creative act of God, the crown of his creation is the creation of man and woman, humanity, and they are made in, we are made in, the image of God, which is an important-sounding phrase, but what does it mean? How do we unpack that? And how I'm going to do that this morning, just the framework I'm going to use for unpacking the meaning of the image of God, is using four R words. Four R words. I help explain what it means to be made in the image of God. The words are representation, rule, reproduction, and relationship. And we'll get to all of those. These four words will lay out a framework for what it means to be made in the image of God and why that's important for us and what does it mean for us as a people, as a population, and as Christians and as individuals. So let's first turn to the first word, are, representation. That's the first kind of aspect of the image of God I want to talk about, is representation. That we, as image bearers, as people made of the image of God, we represent God. We reflect his characteristics, and wherever we go, we represent him. We reflect his presence and his attributes. We, in ourselves, display God. Look at verse 26 and 27. I'll show you what I mean. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Let me skip to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It repeats, we were made in the image of God. That's the focus of the text here. Notice how God introduces, how the text introduces this stage of creation. If you were here last week, if you read Genesis 1, you remember how each step of creation goes. What does God say before he creates? Let there be. That's the phrase that's repeated. Let there be light. Let there be an expanse in between the waters. Let there be birds and fish and animals and so on. The phrase is let there be. Now it changes, doesn't it? 
It's more direct. It's not just let there be a passive word. It's let us make. Because this aspect of creation, this part of creation, God is more intimately involved in. Let us make in our image. You'll notice something else about that phrase. It is spoken in the plural. God, the singular one God says, let us make in our image. And there's been all sorts of debate throughout Christian history and amongst scholars about what does this mean? Why is the singular God referring to himself in the plural? It could be that he's speaking to the court of heaven and the angels and saying, let us make man in our image. But the problem is we're not made in the image of angels. So that doesn't quite make sense. It could be, and this is a possibility, and probably is a reflection of reality, that God is speaking as a king and as lord and on the throne. And when kings make decisions or queens make decisions from their royal throne, they say, let us. We have decided, because they're not just speaking on their own behalf, they're also speaking on behalf of the nation, the throne, the people. So they use a plural. Because when the king or the queen speaks, they're speaking on behalf of a whole people. So this could be a plural of majesty. The king has said, let us make man in our image. We as Christians also know there's probably something else going on here. That God exists, the one God in three persons. And when he makes humanity in his own image, he doesn't just make us in the image of God the Father, but in God the Father, Son, and Spirit. We are made in the image of the triune God. And the triune God speaks within himself. He says, let us make man in our image. I don't know if Moses had any idea of what he was writing when he was writing that, but I think we as Christians know what God means when he says, let us make man in our image. We are made in the image of the triune God. So what does it mean to be made in the image? Well, kings throughout history, especially in the ancient Near East, would set up images of themselves around their nations, around their empire, set up a statue We see that in Daniel 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up statues of himself to be bowed down to and worship. And those statues are representations of the king, and they represent his rule, so that wherever that statue is, that's where his rule is. It's an extension of the king. His image extends his empire. Religions do this as well. We call them idols. An idol is a representation of the god, and wherever that idol is, According to idolatrous religions, that idol represents God. In fact, might contain some of his essence there, his being, so that to worship the idol, the image, is to worship the God itself. One commentator says it this way, In the ancient Near East, it was widely believed that a God's spirit lived in any statue or image of that God with the result that the image could function as a kind of representative of or substitute for the God wherever it was placed. The basic idea is that the image is an extension or a representative of the king or of the God. And God says, let us make man in our image. Part of what he's doing is saying, wherever mankind goes, male or female, they will be extensions of my rule. They will represent me. Just as a statue represents a king, these 
humans, these people, will represent God so that when you look at humanity, you can see there is a God behind those humans. That you can see something of God in them. Not that they are divine, and the Bible will be clear about this. Humanity itself is not divine, but it represents the divine. It represents God. We are the ones who represent God, who are his image bearers. This is why scripture is so against idolatry. Don't make any images of God. Why? Because he's already made them. Because you're not to worship any other God, because God has already designed, he has already made and created people who will be his representation. So we are made in the image of God, we represent him, which means we carry on some of his characteristics. We are made in his likeness, the text says. This doesn't mean we look like God, because God doesn't have a body. But we have some of God's characteristics. Unlike the rest of creation, we have some characteristics of God. We have the capacity to think, to reason, to feel, to have a will, to make choices and make responsible decisions. We have the ability to speak and hear. We can hear each other and we can hear our God. We have the ability to decide, to deliberate, to fellowship with one another, just as God fellowships within himself. We love, we sacrifice, we receive love as image bears. We appreciate beauty and have souls that can be stirred. We create and make and build all of these things because we are made in God's image. We are representatives of his glory. And that is true for both male and female. God created mankind as we call it, humanity in two forms, male and female. It is binary, by God's choice and design. And together they are both made in the image of God. We refer to God in male terms. We know Jesus was revealed to us as a male, but God himself is not male, is not female. Rather, he created two distinct forms of humanity, Male and female, equally image bearers, equal in relationship before God, equal in dignity and value before God. As we go through Genesis, we'll see distinctions between male and female, but here, right at the start, there is an essential equality in value and essence. And when sin affects them both, equally, men and women will be fallen, but both men and women have equal opportunity for salvation in Christ because we are both made in the image of God. Is the first implication of our being made in the image of God is that we as male and female are not in competition with one another and there's no superiority one over the other. There's no room in Christian theology and our understanding of who we are as human beings. There's no room for chauvinistic or feministic superiority. Men and women are not rivals but partners and co-heirs of God's gifts and creation. And both male and female are needed for the image of God to be fully manifested on the earth. Second implication of us being made in the image of God and being his representatives is that every person is made in the image of God. Every person, no matter how young or old, how healthy or sick, how gifted or how impaired, all bear the image of our Creator and have inherent dignity and value. There's no such thing as a worthless person. There are some places around the world and some nations where the population of people with Down syndrome is dropping. 
And it's not because that condition is somehow less prevalent. It's because it's being targeted and eliminated before they're born because they're not valued, not seen as image bearers. We know all people have, and not just have, but are images of God. It means that all people are capable of good. There's a third implication. Regardless of religion, regardless of faith, regardless of worldview, all people are image bearers. So all people, regardless of background, no matter where they come from, all have value and dignity, and all are capable of doing things that are good. Because they're created in the image of God. And no matter how broken a reflection they may be, they are a reflection of God's glory and goodness of all people have the capacity for wonderful things. And there's something else to notice here. You may remember this if you were here last week because we went through the beginning parts of creation, especially as God created the, the plants and vegetation and the fish and the birds and the animals. There was a phrase repeated. What was that phrase? Each according to its kind. Each according to its kind. You'll notice that phrase is not repeated here. Why? Because there aren't different kinds of humanity. There aren't different species of humanity. There aren't different races of humanity. You have people of various ethnic and cultural backgrounds, but they're not broken up into different species and kinds. There's one kind of image bearer in two forms of male and female. There's been a disturbing trend, a recent movement. It's mostly in conservative and reformed and Christian. I'm using quote fingers around all of that. Uh, a movement called kinism. And kinism is the idea that people are and ought to be separated by groups. And that people ought to stay amongst their own kind. Stay amongst their own kin. Marry amongst their own races. Some of you may have been told this growing up. You ought to marry among your own kind. That is a rejection of biblical Christianity. It's a rejection of Genesis 1 and the Imago Dei. God makes the animals of different kinds. He doesn't make humans of different kinds. There is one kind, image bearers. And all are representatives. They are representations of the image of God. First, we represent God. And second... We rule over his creation. As image bearers of what it means to be an image bearer, we rule. That's the second R. What it means to be an image bearer, we rule over creation. See, it's all over this passage. First in verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Then in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then in verses 29 and 30, God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. Notice in verse 26, God says, Let us make mankind in our image. Why? So that they may rule over fish, birds, livestock, wild animals, and creatures. It's a statement of purpose. This is why we're made in the image of God, to rule over creation. That is God's plan. That is God's will for us. It's confirmed in verses 20 through 30. We're to fill the earth and subdue it to rule over fish, birds, and animals. And God gave all the plants of the earth and all the vegetation for us, for food. And it seems to be at the beginning of creation in the garden that maybe we were vegetarians. And I'm sad about that, and I have to reconcile that, but I know Genesis 9 is coming, and we'll praise him for it. But it seems like in the beginning that God says, we'll give you all the plants and all the, the vegetation for food, and you are to rule over the animals. You are to have dominion over them. Which means, and this should be patently obvious to us as we study Genesis 1, that humanity is at the top of God's creation so to speak, that he is the, the crown of creation, that the animals are underneath, subjugated, subjugated to humans, that there's a, a different level of value and there a distinction between humans and animals. We have gotten that messed up at times. So according to one study from Business Insider, in an experiment, 240 students were presented with fake newspaper clippings of a police report, either about an attack on a person or on a dog. In the fake report, the victim was attacked with a baseball bat by an unknown assailant and was left unconscious, with one broken leg and multiple lacerations. Participants were each given the same report, with the victim being either a one-year-old baby, a 30-year-old adult, a puppy, or a six-year-old dog. Then they were asked about how they felt using questions to measure their levels of empathy. Empathy levels for the puppy, older dog, and baby human were on similar levels while the adult person came last. The adult dog only received lower scores of empathy when compared to the infant human victim. If you can follow what all that's saying is we care more about dogs than humans. We feel more empathy towards hurt dogs and hurt humans. That's wrong. That's messed up. We've got our priorities backward. And I'm not surprised by this. I come from the Pacific Northwest, right, where there are more dogs than kids. It's because we have something messed up in our value system. God's value system is not messed up. He values people, and he put them over creation to rule as his image bears, as his vice regents. God is Lord over all creation. He said, you rule on my behalf. I give you creation to steward, to take care of. And this is important. Rule does not mean destroy. Rule, to have dominion over, to subdue, what that means, and we'll see this in Genesis 2, is to tend to and keep and care. God has given us creation to cultivate it, to cause it to flourish, to make more beauty out of beauty. That's the idea behind ruling over creation. We are to cultivate, grow, and develop it. This is what has been called by many the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate given to humanity is to make something of his creation. It's the first purpose statement. If you're into vision statements and purpose statements, why do we do what we do? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Here is the purpose statement of humanity. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. It's why we're here. 
It's the first thing God gave to us to do. To go make good out of this creation. And that's the impetus, the motivation behind all of our creativity and cultivation of the earth. Behind our biology, our chemistry, our geology, our astronomy, our physics. Behind our industry and our labor, our interest in humanities and the arts. Our creativity in music and sports and fashion. Behind our psychology and our studying of ourselves, our anthropology. Behind the advancements in health and medicine and technology. All of that are that's examples of the cultural mandate being worked out in us. God said, go, uh, maybe a Star Trek line, go forth and prosper. It's the command to take what God has given and run with it. And that's why some of us have various interests, why we have interest in the arts, why some of you are just hardwired to, to make art and make music. It's an outworking of the cultural mandate. It's how God made you to be productive and to create. Some of you have an interest in reading books and studying. That's how God made you, to take this creation and just learn it and understand it and develop it. The impetus to work, to work the ground. Some of you love your farming background. That is an expression of the imago Dei and the cultural mandate to go and cultivate. It's what humans have done. We're growing, truly growing, because of the cultural mandate. So I learned this recently, that there has been an incredible expansion of what we know of our universe, of what we can observe of our universe. So in 1922, 100 years ago, the known universe was 100,000 light years long. That was what we knew and could observe. The known universe was 100,000 light years long. And as I've said, I don't know what that means. I just, that, that's a big number. 100,000 light years long. 1920, that's what we knew. Last year, 2022, the known universe is 93 billion light years long. That's a much bigger number. Again, I don't know how to wrap my head around it. I just know that 93 billion is a lot bigger than 100,000. And in 100 years, I don't think space grew that much. We grew that much. We grew in our understanding. Why? Because the cultural mandate, because God made us to develop, to grow. It's why life expectancy is getting longer, particularly in modernized nations, but life expectancy is growing. That's a good thing. In 1900, the average U.S. US lifespan was 47 years old. In 1900. In 2019, average US, U.S. lifespan had increased to 79 years old. We're growing in our ability and our understanding of how to sustain ourselves and how to keep ourselves alive. And that's a good thing. That's the result of the Imago Dei in us. The cultural mandate to learn how it all works and to grow. Part of the reason we hate sin is because it works against that creative capacity. That's why God gives laws, ethics, commands. Because he wants us to prosper and he knows that following his word will prosper us. He's created us for that. And sin does the opposite. It destroys and gets in the way. If we are obedient to God, we will see life flourish and grow. If we reject God, we'll lead, or it will lead to death and disruption. We've been given a mandate. to rule over creation and make good out of it. So that's my mandate for you. Last week I gave you a homework assignment. And that homework assignment was go enjoy creation because God made it. Go enjoy it and glorify him in it. Here's your homework assignment this week, and you can talk about this in your small groups. Go create. 
whatever that means to you. That could be taking the snow outside and rolling up a snowball and throwing it at somebody. That's cultural mandate stuff, taking creation and cultivating a round ball, throwing it at your friend. That's making something out of God's creation. That's what I want you to do this week. Worship him in creation. Whether it's work, whether it's play, whatever it is, take part in the cultural mandate and make good out of God's creation. The second R is rule. The third R, after representation and rule, is reproduction. And by that, I mean exactly how that sounds. Reproduction. That is the third R and what it means to be made in the image of God. We are created to reproduce. It's an essential component of our being made in the image of God collectively, that we will be a people who grows and expands and reproduces. Look again at verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. So I had a seminary professor once ask us, What's the first command in the Bible? The first command in the Bible is make babies. It's the first time God speaks to his creation. Remember in all the other days and all the other acts of creation, God said, let there be, let there be. But now for the first time he speaks to his creation. And what are the first spoken words? Be fruitful and increase in number. Expand out. Make more people. It's why we make such significance of our being made male and female. People wonder, why are Christians so consumed with these topics of sex and gender? Well, it's one, it's where the world is pushing us, but two, it goes back to our very purpose in creation. It's on the first page of the Bible. We are created male and female for the purpose of reproduction and filling the earth with people. It's part of who we are and our very purpose as people God gave us sex as a good gift. For the purpose of reproduction, as commentator Victor Hamilton said, sexuality is not an accident of nature, nor is it simply a biological phenomenon. Instead, it is a gift of God. It's part of why he made us. It's why we are against homicide in all its forms against euthanasia, against assisted suicide. It's why we are against the killing of the unborn is because we read Genesis 1 and we know that all people are made in the image of God. It happens to be National Sanctity of Life Day. But I want you to know that the Christian position against the killing of the unborn is not new, nor does it come from any political movement or agenda. We hold to the sanctity of life and we stand against the killing of the unborn because of Genesis 1. Because we are Christians and we are compelled by what Scripture says and what we know of who we are. And some may accuse, oh, you're just responding to a political movement, the whole anti-abortion pro-life thing, that's just Republican stuff. No, Let me read to you from John Calvin, who lived in the 1500s. He says, commenting on Exodus 21, the fetus, though enclosed in the womb of its mother, is already a human being. 
and it is a most monstrous crime to rob it of the life which it has not yet begun to enjoy. If it seems more horrible to kill a man in his own house than in a field, because a man's house is a place of most secure refuge, it ought surely to be deemed more atrocious to destroy a fetus in the womb before it has come to light. Or you could hear this from Tertullian, who lived around 200 AD, who said, For us, murder is once for all forbidden. So even the child in the womb, while yet his mother's blood is still being drawn on to form the human being, it is not lawful for us to destroy. To forbid birth is only quicker murder. It makes no difference whether one take away the life of once born or destroy it as it comes to birth. He is a man who is to be a man. The fruit is always present in the seed. Or you could go back to the Didache, which is an early collection of Christian teaching from about AD 70, just decades after Jesus walked the earth. And the Didache says, The second commandment of the teaching, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not seduce boys, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not use potions, you shall not procure an abortion, nor destroy a newborn child. I'm pretty sure John Calvin, Tertullian, and the earliest Christians were not Republicans. They didn't need a political movement to know what Scripture plainly speaks. To kill the unborn, to kill the elderly out of convenience and assisted suicide, to murder the innocent is a violation of the Imago Dei the image of God in us, and it wars against God's very purpose for humanity for us to fill the earth. If that's not clear to you, I would say in your Bible reading program, don't move on from Genesis 1 yet. Stay there until you get this sorted. If Any one of us have participated in the destruction of life, and in some ways we all have. The good news is is there's grace for us in Jesus Christ. And that there is no unforgivable sin in the destruction of humanity. In fact, there's only forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And you say, we might say, well, speaking of Jesus, wasn't he single? He didn't have kids. And I'd say, yeah. He did not have physical children, but he made many children. And he's an example for us, and it's why you don't have to be married and have kids to be part of this mandate to fill the earth with image bearers. This is a collective work of all people. It's a work of the church. It's a work of families. It's a work of all Christians to make and raise and produce humans, and even more so, have spiritual children who worship and honor the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why we make babies. Because it's good. It is no curse. It's a blessing to have kids. And it's why we make disciples. Because it's good. It's why we plant churches. Because we are creation, mandate, and great commission people sent out to go and fill the earth. Leads us to the last R, and we'll cover this one more quickly. 
First three, representation, rule, and reproduction. Last R is relationship. We were made for relationship, first and foremost, with God our Father. It's hinted at in verse 31, which says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So again, there's a pattern here of breaking patterns once we get to the sixth day of creation, the creation of humanity. Because before the pattern was, God saw what he had made, and it was good. But now he breaks the pattern. God saw what he had made, and it was very good. Because now creation is complete. Now he has created the apple of his eye, his people, humanity. God loves his people. And when he says it's very good, it's an indication that he values his people. And that they are the capstone of creation. What he was all building up to. What do parents who are expecting do when they're expecting their first child? They nest, right? They clear out a room or a closet or somewhere where they can stick a baby. They prepare the space. They paint the walls. They get all the things needed to find a, a crib. Or um, my sibling once used a, a postal service box and just put, you know, hey, Jesus was born in a manger, right? We, whatever we can, but we find a way to care for the child that's coming and create a place for them. This is what God has done in creation. It's why humans are created last. Because they're a crown of creation and because God was busy preparing the world first. It's divine nesting. Create a whole world, a whole creation for you to inhabit, for you to fill, for you to cultivate. Because why? I love you. Just as a parent loves a child, I love you and want you to prosper and to grow and to thrive. Us being children of God and his creation, his children, is an aspect of us being made in the image of God. Listen to the words of Genesis 5.3. Just a few pages later, we'll get there. But in Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. You hear that? There's a sonship relationship with likeness and image. Adam had a son, Seth, in his own image, his own likeness. The way we have children is likened to the way God created us, in his own image, his own likeness. There's relationship. It's why you were created. It's what you're created for, to have a relationship with your creator. You weren't just made for service or for work. You weren't just made for religious duty. You weren't just made to attend services and hear sermons and attend Bible studies and do work. Those things are good, but it's not really ultimately why you were made. You were made relationship with the Lord, and all those things serve that, that your relationship with God might grow and develop, and that you might know him as he knows you. God loves you and created you with purpose. For representation, to represent and reflect God as his image bearer, he created you for rule, to subdue and rule creation, to cultivate the earth. He created you for reproduction, to, to fill the earth, with image bearers and fill the earth with worshipers of the Lord. And he created you for relationship, to know him and enjoy him forever. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. 
And sin gets in the way of all that. Our own rebellion, our own wickedness, the the evil that other people do, the hurt that's inflicted upon us, all, all of that threatens to destroy that image or to shatter it and to disrupt it. And we would be totally hopeless as image bearers if we didn't have a means or a way of restoring that image, reconciling that image, repairing that image. And the only one who can repair that image that's been shattered, still there but broken, the only one who can repair it is Jesus Christ. And if you've been here a long time, you know where this is going. You know this. That Jesus Christ is the one who repairs the image of God in us. Why? Because he's the perfect image of God and man. He is the creator, the one in the very likeness of God, a perfect representation of him, and a perfect image and representation of us. Colossians 1, 16, 17, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the creator and the exact image of God. He is God himself. And he's also the perfect image of humanity who became like us in every way except without sin. In Philippians 2, Paul says that Christ was made in human likeness. So that Christ could perfectly represent God and us living a sinless life. So that Christ could perfectly rule. You know, when he comes and calms wind and waves and directs creation, he's fulfilling that Imago Day mandate and doing it as God and man. In reproduction, he made many spiritual children. He sent the Spirit and birthed the church. In relationship, he perfectly related to the Father as a son. In him, we can have the image restored if we're united with Christ by faith. The perfect image bearer. It's my invitation to you. As you read Genesis 1, as you think about why you're created, what you're here to do, you're here to bring the image of God everywhere and know that you cannot do it really, truly, faithfully without Christ who repairs the image and one day will make us perfect as image bearers. I'll close with a silly thought. One silly thought, just bonus. Here's bonus sermon time, which we all wanted. I know. What will heaven be like? Like, where's this all going? Does it sound boring to you? In all of our brokenness, we have a lot of fun on earth. In all of our shattering of the image of God, we do lots of fun and wonderful things. We have visited the moon and sent things to the surface of Mars as broken people. 
Imagine what we will do in a perfected universe as perfect people. The creation mandate won't be over. It'll be perfected and fulfilled, and we'll do it for eternity. And there'll be eternal joy for us in it. That's why we're created, what we're created to do as image bearers. We can only do it in Christ. Would you pray with me? And Father, we worship you this morning. We worship you in creation. We worship you in our creation. The fact that we were created in your image. And Lord, that should change everything for us as we think about who we're interacting with on a day-to-day basis, whether it be with others in the church or in our own family or people we see in the grocery store. We know that all are glorious people made in the image of a glorious God and help that to shape all that we do and to rejoice in it, Lord. And then when we mourn over sin and the brokenness that we see that is ever prevalent, that is obvious to us, Lord, we have hope because of Jesus Christ, the perfect image bearer of divinity and humanity. Let us place our trust and faith in him and know that you have purpose for us because you love us and you have relationship with us through Jesus Christ, our brother. Encourage us today in this, Lord. May we go out into the world and enjoy what you have made. Amen. Our confession of faith this morning comes from the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the